Hello and happy new year to all our podcast subscribers. We hope you had a fabulous break and feel recharged for the year ahead. Livewise regular podcast, The Rules of Investing will be back on air in early February. However, we do have some special content to share with you, which has been recorded as part of Livewise Outlook series for 2024. In this special episode, you'll hear how two of Barron's top-rated financial advisors would allocate $1 million in 2024. You'll learn about the key factors influencing their decisions, the asset classes they are overweight and underweight right now, as well as some of their tips for preserving capital over the year ahead. I should say that there are some charts referenced in this discussion. I'll share a link to the write-up of this podcast in the description so that you can check those out. I really hope you enjoy this discussion as much as we did producing it. Here's LiveWise James Marley, who is the host of this episode. Hi there, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to LiveWise 2024 Outlook Series. My name's James Marley. I'm co-founder at LiveWire Markets. And this is your asset allocation guide for 2024. I'm joined by Paul Bergen, managing partner and CIO at Littman Bergen and Partners, and Charlie Viola, partner and managing director of wealth at Pitcher Partners. Now, these two are some of the most well-respected and highly regarded advisors in the country, and they're going to give you an in-depth guide to how they're allocating for their clients and how they're thinking about markets for the year ahead. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for your time and welcome. Thank you, James. Thanks, James. Charlie, I'll start with you. You know, what are sort of the top two or three factors that are uh, coming to your thoughts as you look at asset allocation for 2024? So I think the top three for us are probably firstly valuations. Secondly, you know, probably no surprise, it's interest rates and the interest rate environment, which is still going on. And then the third one is probably just some of the geopolitical risks that are going on. So from a valuations point of view, I gave you a graph the other day, which just showed the relationship between the 10-year bond yield and earnings yield really just showing what the real return investors are actually getting at the moment from equities. And you can see in that graph that we're probably seeing returns which are probably, you know, worse than what, you know, the worst they've been for about 20 years. So we don't think investors at the moment are being rewarded for the risk they're taking from an equities point of view. So for us, we're looking to be underweight equities at this point in time and really kind of waiting for weakness in markets before we dive back into equity markets. Um, the second one being interest, interest rates, clearly the interest rate discussion and the inflation discussion has been done and done and done and kind of overdone over a really long period of time. Um, but if we can kind of consider the next 12 months, especially in the US where we're probably going to start to see rate cuts, we're probably still a little bit concerned that those rate cuts may not have the impact that investors want and that markets want. So we might see a bit of, bit of disappointment from that perspective. So we're still a little bit cautious about making further allocations um, to, to especially global markets. And, you know, who would have thought that, that this year we've kind of seen, you know, US markets go up 20% and the NASDAQ go up 40 or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, we, again, we, you know, we think that valuations and we don't think that interest rate, the interest rate cuts that we might see next year are going to have enough of an impact um, to see kind of equity valuations keep going up. But also as a result of rates, we've probably got a, a bunch of those kind of interest rate sensitive style investments, which are still producing good investor returns. And, and while we get that there is risk associated with private debt, private credit, and even traditional fixed interest, the reality is as long as you're kind of doing your due diligence and you're finding good investments there, returns there versus the risk you're taking is, you know, for us, reasonably attractive. So we're still allocating um, there. And then 
The other major factor for us is still just the uncertainty that's going on in the world. You know, markets don't like unrest. So we kind of want to see the world settle down just a little bit before we go harder at stuff that, uh, you know, has genuine equity risk attached to it. Okay. Paul, what are some of the things that, that are factoring into your decision making? Yes, there's probably three sort of factors that we put into an asset allocation framework. So the first would be looking at macro and sort of, again, there's, there's questions you want to ask there and there's kind of three questions on macro, which is what is the impact of interest rates on economic growth and, you know, how much is economic growth likely to slow? I think the forecast for global growth GDP is about 2.7% and that's a bit lower than trend of about sort of 3.5. So we know economic growth is going to be below trend. The second question on the macro side is, is just where, you know, has inflation peaked? Are, are we confident that we've seen the peak in inflation? You know, if we look at US inflation now, it's, it's in the freeze. So it's really getting close to that target. Australia's got some way to go because we're, we're still above five. Um, and then the third aspect that we're also looking for is what is the likely direction of policy in terms of interest rate policy? Are we likely to see cuts or, or rises ne next week? So that's one sort of factor that goes in. The second factor is then looking at valuations um, and really just looking at valuations across asset classes. And I, I, I think I sent through an example on equities. And it might be a sort of a chart that we refer to that just looks at, you know, P valuations versus history and also sort of price to book valuations versus to history. And we're expensive, but we're not super expensive. And this is on the US market. And if you took out kind of the magnificent seven stocks, the actual market is, is trading relatively um, in line with, with, with long-term averages. So we don't think equities on a, on a P basis are particularly overvalued. Certainly on a relative basis to bonds, they are, um, which we'll come to. The other aspect that we also look at is if you look at the relationship between valuations of stocks and subsequent returns, and I'll just reference this on chart two, yep. it's really inconsistent. So there's, if, if we were, or if there was a really strong relationship between um, current valuations and future returns, you would see it in the top left-hand graph of that chart, you would see a really strong skew. And what you see is really no relationship at all there. Um, and then the third aspect that we actually- So, so just on that point, yes, just because something's cheap doesn't mean it will deliver a good return the year after. And just because something's expensive doesn't mean it can't keep Absolutely. getting more expensive. Uh, there's often very little relationship at all, particularly yep. when we're looking at, say, price earnings ratios. Coming back probably to Charlie's point, and this is where we'd agree on a fair amount that Charlie sort of referenced, is the other aspect that goes into the framework is relative value. And so when we're thinking about relative value, when we've got bonds at yields at almost at a 10-year highs, we've got you know, private credit that's paying sort of 8 to 10%. And we've also got bonds that can now play a defensive part in the portfolio. It's natural for us just putting the macro aside on a relative value basis to be overweight those types of asset classes. And those three things kind of form into the framework we make and then we make decisions around that. Yeah, very good. In terms of major risk on or risk off tilts, uh, you talked you know, a bit about the valuation and the equities. Are there any major themes that, um, you know, uh, where you're, you're particularly overweight or underweight? In private credit. We like direct lending. So this is US direct lending. Um, it's generally done, you know, I would be you know, mid-market and above. So you're looking at enterprise values of 500 million to you know, you know, one and a half billion type valuations and companies. There's been a massive pullback from that space really since the GFC. So you can get large portfolios of loans where there was, they're, they're, they are written with a one-on-one -on -one counterparty where they're dictating terms and collateral, et cetera. We're trying to be careful about you know, the maturity levels of those loans, but we're picking up eight, 10%. We think you know, a year, two years ago when interest rates are lower, you were getting five. Yeah. So for the same level of risk, you're getting, you're getting paid a lot more. 
you know, the other risk on, although it's not um, necessarily traditional risk on, is, is definitely long bonds. So, yep. you know, our expectation is that... See, we that think, hasn't been said for a while, no, has it? No, I know. It's, I mean, we, we went to having no government duration at all in, in portfolios. But I think now the benefit that you can have from having sort of long duration in portfolios is it also allows you to run probably a high level to risk assets. Because if risk assets start collapsing, you can definitely expect your government bonds to perform. Yep. So it, it provides that kind of, you know, kind of insular... Um, sort of that traditional relationships yeah. restored a little, is it? Definitely. I think yeah, over the next one to two years, I think that that's, that's going to help. And it's going to help be able to maintain a diversified portfolio rather than to having to have really aggressive tilts one way or the other. Yep. Probably just the third part, which I'll, I'll just sort of touch on is, you know, it, it, within private markets, again, secondaries. So we, we know there's an overallocation to, to markets. We know there's a lot of liquidity that's being sought. And so assets have been sold at discounts. So if you can partner with a large you know, buy out um, secondary specialist, et cetera, you can pick up some really good assets at discount. You may have to forego some liquidity, but again, it's an opportunity there where you're, you're being a liquidity provider and you can get paid for being a liquidity provider. Mm -hmm. Charlie, risk on, risk off tilts that you would particularly call out in your portfolios? Yeah, we're probably a little bit the same in terms of um, private credit, private debt. Uh, you know, we're probably allocating and we're allocating, you know, uh, heavily enough, I, I would say. Um, we're really mindful that there's still somebody on the other side having to pay the credit, right? So as rates go up and, and what have you. Um, the other kind of risk on is, you know, you, you asked me before what we do. We think we're custodians of clients' capital for, you know, 50, 70, 100 years, right? Like we want to create legacy. We want people to have portfolios that run for really long periods of time. We're still of the view that private equity and private markets is the place where people should be investing long term. So we're still encouraging people to be investing in those in those areas. I agree with Paul in terms of the secondaries. I think there's lots of opportunity that's coming that's coming there. You know, and I make the point that obviously private markets, you know, considerably bigger than what public markets are. So there's lots of investment opportunity. In terms of risk off, um, you know, I made the point before around valuations. Look, reality is when rates are up and consumer spending is down, it kind of sucks for most asset classes. Um, so, you know, and I think short of us seeing kind of more government stimulus, which is probably not going to happen now, um, again, we're probably off equities uh, at the moment. Um, you know, again, we think that there will be opportunity over time. I'm sure if you talk to any fund manager or portfolio manager in the equity space, they're going to be sit here and be really bullish because they want us to tip all the client money uh, in there. So they'll be telling you about all the reasons why their funds are going to go up. They may, they may certainly in the second half of the year, but for the moment, we're waiting for opportunities and we're waiting for weakness. Okay. We're about to get into the specifics of the asset allocation framework that, that you've sent through to me. But I just very quickly for both of you, you've both talked extensively about the appeal of private markets versus public markets. And Charlie, you just said it was a key ingredient for what you hope will be intergenerational long-term portfolios. Why do you have that view? Why are private markets so appealing relative to public? A couple of reasons. Um, firstly, they're considerably larger than what, than what public markets are um, in reality. I think secondly, I think the time has gone where private markets have to turn into public markets for liquidity events. Uh, I think, you know, once upon a time, everyone needed to list or needed the kind of public markets to be able to get their money out. That's no longer the case. Uh, and I also think that the opportunities that exist in those markets now, where we can actually get into the nitty gritty, do the due diligence, I actually think it gives us an opportunity to produce better investor returns and also protect the capital, capital a little bit more. And then we're not 
we're not so sensitive to some of the macro stuff. We're not so sensitive to the way sentiment is kind of driving markets, etc. It's really just how that asset or those assets or, you know, that relationship between um, that lender and, and that borrower and how that's performing or how that's kind of operating is what's driving the outcomes. So we feel like we can actually protect investors a little a little better, produce outsized returns as a as a result, and just not be so correlated to the way people are feeling about things as opposed to it's what's really going on. slightly purer exposure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I would I would agree with most of what Charlie has said, if not not everything there. I think just to add would be dispersion of returns in private markets is much greater than public markets. So what we find is the difference between the top quartile manager and the bottom quartile manager in public markets is very narrow. In, in private markets, it's very large. So there's a lot of opportunity there for us to actually go in and add alpha through manager selection. And I think the other two things are, when you're investing in, in private markets or private equity, you're getting paid for operational expertise. So these are, you know, these are funds who are going in, adding operational expertise to a business. They're helping its growth plans, they're helping its M&A structure, rather than giving your capital to a, you know, a stock picker who's trying to pick stocks and, and set up meetings with management. And on the private credit side as well, you're generally getting paid for complexity. So the reason why you're getting paid uh, you know, a premium to public market credit is because there's complexity in writing those deals and doing the documentation. So I'd much rather be paid for complexity or for adding operational expertise than for just sort of playing in, in, in the public market space. So I think it's an ever-growing opportunity set um, and it's going to be increasingly a, a larger part of client portfolios going forward. Well, let's get to the part that I think a lot of people are going to find quite revealing. <laughs> We've talked a bit about the theory and a bit about the inputs. Yes. Let's get to how you guys would allocate a million dollars or Paul, I understand $10 million is the, is the starting point for your shop. But let's talk about asset allocation and your frameworks for 2024. Charlie, why don't you take, uh, take first lead and, and, and talk us through. You've sent us through a bit of an overview of your asset allocation. We'll get it up on the screen for people that are watching this video. Talk us through your positions and the thinking behind it. Yeah, so uh, I think for us, uh, I think what's probably going to be most stark for people for us is the cash number for us. It's reasonably big at, at 18%. We don't really see cash as an asset class, to be honest. We really see that as dry powder, as money waiting to be invested elsewhere. So that's probably the first point. That's really just unallocated money for us at the moment. We're waiting for weakness. We're waiting for opportunity. I think the second point is, is that we're probably going to be reasonably heavily underweight equities, both um, domestic and international, you can see there that we've only allocated about 30% of our monies to equities. The reality is over a, over a much longer period of time, we've been much closer to kind of 40 and 50 and, and 60. And the reality is if we've had a client since, you know, 2003, 20 years later, if they've held nothing but CBA and BHP shares, they've probably seen, you know, their, their equity allocations go up um, reasonably significantly. So, you know, it becomes upon us to make sure that we're kind of reallocating those monies over a period of time. You can see that we're probably overweight fixed interest. It depends on how you kind of talk about fixed interest. Traditional fixed interest we think is really important, but then also in kind of that same bucket is kind of what's sometimes known as, you know, kind of alternatives or defensive alternatives in terms of that private credit, private debt space. So, you know, we, we, we're going with a reasonably heavy allocation to those. We think that the, uh, the return, as long as you're doing your due diligence and as long as you know exactly what the, you know, um, the sponsor looks like and the LVR and whether there's construction risk and all that sort of stuff that goes into especially that sort of private debt space, you know, we think returns are probably asymmetric to the risk at, at this point in time. And then we're overweight what we would call alternatives. 
lots of people. It's a broad church, right? Yeah, lots of people say alternatives, and they go, "Oh, you know, you're going to put me into a Guatemalan coal mine or something." Um, <laughs> absolutely not. They're just kind of normal assets, which have been kind of wrapped up with a kind of illiquidity premium. Um, but we are looking to be overweight private equity. We're looking to be uh, overweight good quality operating assets. So um, one of the things that we've done a lot of, certainly over the last four or five or six months, is look for assets which are somewhat non-cyclical, where we're generating the return regardless of what's going on in markets and what's going on from an economic point of view. Um, you know, we, and we like operating real estate. Uh, so we've taken you know, exposure to hospitality trusts, we've taken exposure to MA Financial's Diabora Trust, which we like, we love the assets, we love the manager, we like the fact that the assets are hard to repeat, you know, they generate revenue through the cycle. You know, we've taken exposure to to regional pub funds that we that we really like, where you know we just as long as the manager's doing a good job in growing the EBITDA, you know, it, it flows income through to the um, to the underlying investor. Really, we're looking for good quality assets that can generate revenue over a long period of time, and we want those um, long-held private equity assets as well. So, the big piece of cash in reality is probably, in truth reserved for equities when we see weakness. Right. When we see some of that valuation methodology or metrics come back to us, when we see value um, in, in markets, we do want to start to allocate there again. Um, but over the, over the very long term, we expect ourselves to be kind of, you know, 40 or 50% invested in private markets across, you know, across debt, property uh, and private equity. Yep. Paul, I'll go over to you now. Why don't you, we've got your asset allocation. Yep. You've brought what's called the strategic and the tactical. Yes. Why don't you talk us yeah. through the, the different tilts that you've got on there and explain what the difference between those yeah, two so strategies? Yeah, I'll talk to both and probably just to touch on the framework because there's different ways to approach investing in markets. And I think there's no necessarily you know, right way or wrong way. There's an approach that we take that we, we, we've got a lot of confidence in and how we, how we build portfolios. But it doesn't mean that I would, you know, I would that other approaches, you know, don't make sense. So probably just to start there. So when we when we think about strategic asset allocation and this, what what I've actually sort of illustrated um, for for the audience today is probably something that's that is immediately available. So it probably suit that it could suit that one million dollar portfolio. Yep. Um, you know, as we tend to go higher up the capital, we end up having a, a high more of an endowment style. It ends up being higher allocations of private assets. But what you will know is just on the asset allocation description, just coming back to that sort of alternatives, we don't consider you know, private equity as alternative. We now consider private equity as part of equities. We now see, consider private credit as part of your fixed income allocation. Yep. We now consider unlisted infrastructure and unlisted property as part of your real assets. Yep. And what we consider alternative would generally feel probably a term that we look at as things like crisis alpha. So it could be like a multi-strategy hedge fund that we're expecting to perform when markets really run into difficulty. Yep. It could be a royalty strategy. It could be a trend following strategy. But it, it's, it, coal mine or? Definitely not a Guatemalan coal mine. No, we are, we're very distinctive in who we put in the portfolios, but it's hard to get access to those multi-strats, but the multi-strats that we like would be people like Millennium, Point72, Citadel, et cetera. So that said, so the way that we think about things, if we do start with a long-term asset allocation in mind for a client's particular circumstances, we do make changes on that asset allocation based on, you know, probably a couple of matters. One is macro, but we're very careful around 
moving a portfolio too much on macro. And the second is relative value, which tends to have more of a weighting. Yep. So we, we feel there's more confidence in relative value versus then sort of macro forecasting, which we find incredibly difficult yep. to do and consistently over time. So within sort of equities currently, one, you'll see our tactical is, at, this is where we're sitting today. We've got about a 4% underweight to equity markets. And most of that overweight is actually sitting in within, within fixed income. So we're overweight duration, we're overweight private credit. And we think that makes sense just from a relative Some of the value. things we talked yeah, about today. Exactly, just on a relative value basis. Um, within unlisted assets, we're actually, we're, we're below target. So we're, you know, over the course of, you know, particularly this year with rising interest rates, you know, we haven't been wanting to allocate to property and infrastructure. We think the time's gonna come. Like even in the listed space, if, if you suddenly have, you know, interest rates being cut, you can see a big pickup. Office won't recover, but you'll see a big pickup in, in other asset classes. Um, so we're underweight those, those asset classes. In alternatives, we're slightly underweight at the moment, but this is where we are sitting today and we're overweight cash. We are not super negative on equities at the moment, but we do feel that the second half of next year, there's, there, there's significant risk. So th there's, there, it, it may be worth actually referring to um, another chart which I actually showed you if it's possible just to on screen. Yeah. And we'll just show you what's probably gonna drive uh, another move underweight to equities. So what you tend to find, this is research that's provided by BCA. They're one of the, the, the leading global macro houses in, in the world. And what they particularly look at is the relationship between you know, unemployment and economic activity and inflation. And, and what it states is that there's never been a case in the post war era where the three month unemployment rate has risen by more than one third of a percentage point without a recession taking place. And so it's, it, if you look back right across time, it's, it's an incredible chart to actually follow. And so what BCA sort of thesis is or is warning is, is that although the US at the current time is looking like it's, it's definitely headed for a soft landing, you know, we're still seeing 200,000 job prints coming on, the unemployment rate's really low, inflation's coming down. What we are seeing is job openings coming down. So that cushion that we've had of excess savings, the cushion that we've had of a lot of jobs available as people lose jobs, they've been able to take them on, is starting to fall. And it's now about 1.4 job openings for every person that's looking for unemployment, for employment. As that starts to even out, and when people lose their jobs and they find it harder to find jobs, the whole sentiment of how people think about spending money, et cetera, starts to change. And so you don't really need any crisis for that to occur. It's almost you, you, you have a, a, a change point in, in, in momentum for the economy that's quite difficult to see. But as people start finding it more hard, to, difficult to find jobs, the, whole, the behavior changes, sentiment changes, et cetera. And as people start you know, reducing spending, one person's spending is another person's income, you can see a head, heading into recession. So we're really focused on just seeing the unemployment rate. If it starts to pick up, we'll reduce more underweight equities. But we, the reason also that we're managing, if we just go back to the asset allocation chart again, why we retain a reasonable allocation there is that we do think that you, you, with bond yields where they are, you can run a reasonable allocation to equities and still run that protection through bonds. Yeah. So because you've got much higher interest rates, you know, you can still run a reasonably balanced portfolio with that protection in place. So if BCO are wrong, which they, they well could be, we do end up with a soft landing scenario and, and equities end up doing sort of very well, you know, you're still gonna have that position in the portfolio. Um, probably just finally, with the other aspect that we will do is we'll definitely increase the alternatives. So we'll increase that crisis alpha, but I think in the next quarter of next year, we're looking at a trend following strategy. There's other things that we want in there. that are idiosyncratic returns that can complement the portfolio overall. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much for bringing that detail along. That is really awesome. Thank you too, Charlie. Before we 
move on. We're going we're gonna to sort of come towards the end of a couple of questions to finish up with. I was just interested, you know, the financial advice industry, um, it's changing, it's dynamic, how we implement, how you guys are building portfolios has changed. What's something unique or innovative or different that you're doing compared to, you know, how you're investing 10 years or, or so ago? So probably framework and risk analytics. So the, the portfolio tools that we have today are far in advance of even where they were sort of five years ago. So, you know, some of the difficulty in, in managing portfolios is outside of asset allocation, you want to under, understand the risk drivers of the portfolio. So how much sensitivity do you have to equity risk to interest rate this risk? This is how assets risk. mix together yeah, and exactly. how they behave. And how they look through. And so what you tend to find is that it's, you know, equities have a, a sensitive, obviously, to movement in equity markets, but also credit is. And so through portfolio risk analytics tools, we can actually start t t testing that risk factor sensitivity. Um, and we also now build portfolios with track and error frameworks, which is risk frameworks. So we actually set risk budgets per asset class, which means that we can actually control for volatility, which again just goes, but if, if we've got more certainty of how assets are likely to perform through cycles, that again encourages that correct investor behavior. And our view as investor behavior is the number one driver of returns. If we get the investor behavior right because we've got the, the overall allocation to the managers right and we understand what they're going to do, we think you're going to get much, you know, really consistent long-term outcomes for the clients. And it goes back to the Charlie's point. classes can do their Absolutely. job. Absolutely. Charlie, same question to you. Yeah, I actually agree with Paul, but let me maybe say it in, like I say, everything a little bit more simply. I think we're just much more sophisticated from an investment perspective now than what we ever were before. I think people who do our job now, especially with the types of clients that, that we have, we're investment guys. I think once upon a time, the kind of financial planning industry was made up of people who weren't particularly investment guys, rather uh, they went through the planning process with people and making sure that you know super contributions were made. The Australian tax system is really so simple now and you know we've only got four, four different tax structures that we can stick money into. It's become incumbent upon all of us to learn more about the investment framework, more about how risk return trade-off works, more about the opportunities that exist from an investment market point of view. The other thing is, is that if we don't find those opportunities, if we don't find those um, alternate assets, if we don't find those private market things, People will just go and do things themselves. Nobody wants us just to go and stick money into an ETF for them uh, any longer because they can go and do, why would they? Why would they pay us, you know, um, 60 or 70 or 80 or 100 basis points to do that when they could go and do that themselves? So it becomes incumbent upon us to work really hard to be investment guys, to work through the analytics, to actually do the risk return trade-off and to actually show them why working with groups like us actually protects their capital, helps them meet their needs, produces the intergenerational stuff, and then allow us to educate the next generation on how the monies are invested and why they're invested that way. So, and that is a major shift from where we were previously, which was really just about, hey, let's just make sure you've got the right money in the right tax structure, we'll stick it into the, we'll stick it into 60, the ETF <laughs> and, and, yep. and kind of hope for the best. Yep. So. One of the promises we've made to our readers for the Outlook series is that we would help them avoid a few of the potholes um, so my final question, I feel like it, it shouldn't be an asset class, it should be one about investor behaviour after everything you've said today, uh, Paul and Charlie, but is there an asset class or an investment that you think people should be really cautious of in 2024? Like I probably would have said this 12 months ago and I would have been wrong. I think we're all probably bad at trying to tell the future. Um, but look, I think, I think global equities is, is probably one where I'd be cautious about making too heavy an investment, um, you know, for all the reasons that Paul talked about in terms of um, the employment stuff. But I think the thing that compounds that, to be honest, is that uh, the Fed's only lever is going to be to cut 
is to cut rates, and I think they will cut rates uh, next year. I think that markets will be disappointed by the outcomes of that because it's not going to impact spending as much as what um, they believe it will or even the market may expect it to. Most US mortgages are actually 30-year fixed mortgages. So even if you cut rates, it's actually not impacting spending particularly. So... Um, yeah, I'm probably a little bearish in terms of uh, global markets. I do think that there will be pockets that will do well. I still think that tech and AI and a few of those sort of pockets will do well. But I think broad global markets will probably underperform uh, a number of the other asset classes over the next 12 months. Paul, same question for you. Yeah, probably a couple. Any investment that's brought to you by a friend of you from the golf club, I, I'd, be, I'd be exceptionally cautious about, is one. Depends where you uh, play golf, um, I suppose. I don't think, I, I'm not sure that it does. Um, secondly, any any manager that has recently sort of established himself as a wholesale manager and they don't really have a track record, but they're marketing to a group of wholesale investors, right. I'd be exceptionally cautious about. And finally, and thirdly, I'd be very cautious around private markets as well. So everything that we say around private markets being a really sort of good asset class, et cetera, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things you have to be careful of. There's so much coming to market. There's, not, there's, there's a lot of things which aren't necessarily aligned. I'd really be looking to partner with you know, the best in the world globally and the, the niche players that you really have confidence in Australia. And I think, again, going to Charlie's point, this, this is what you, you generally need advice for. So be very careful. It's a minefield out there in those private markets. But if you get it right, the returns are fantastic. If you get it wrong, as I said, the dispersion of the returns are incredibly wide. Awesome points to finish on. Thank you both for your time today. I really appreciate the amount of information you've shared with us and uh, the explanation you've provided around uh, your asset allocation. Thanks very Thanks, much, James. James. Yeah, thanks, Charlie. To all you viewers out there, I hope you enjoyed that roundtable. Awesome insights from two of the best financial advisors in the Australian market. Thank you so much for tuning in to our 2024 Outlook series. Remember, check on YouTube. We've got lots of great content just like this coming to you all throughout January.